So welcome to Bookish at Bethel. This week we have Dr. Marion Larson as our guest talking to us about Tocqueville's democracy in America and also dealing with life in the time of COVID. Um, I'm Carrie Peffley in the philosophy department. We've got Anne-Marie Koistra from the history department as well. And I think we're gonna have a good conversation today. All right. Well, Marian Larson, thanks for joining us today. And uh, could you, for the listeners out there, just give us a little sense of what students will have read in Tocqueville this week? What are they reading about in uh, Tocqueville? So students are reading. Now, I, I'm having my seminar section read things in a slightly different order. Okay. So, um, but some of the things they're going to be encountering in Tocqueville, uh, students will encounter a little bit of Tocqueville saying, um, look, I come from Europe and I come from, uh, he came, comes specifically from France after the French Revolution. And he says, okay, American Revolution, French Revolution, I'm pretty sure that revolution is the wave of the future. People like it or not, it's a democracy is the inevitable direction that the world is going to go. And um, so he kind of lays out uh, what he is planning to talk about. And he says, of the democracies that exist in the world, um, America has been doing it longer than anyone else. So I wanted to go to America and see How's it going? What seems to be helping democracy work in America and what seems potentially to be hindering it so that these are lessons that the rest of us could learn. Um, so he, he talks about that. And then uh, in terms of, uh, he has this phrase, habits and mores, um, and uh, which kind of has to do with the sort of cultural beliefs and practices of, uh, some people call this habits of the heart, Mm -hmm. of particular societies. And he, he says he really thinks that habits and mores are more important than anything else mm -hmm. when it comes to um, understanding what makes democracy work or not work. And uh, in talking about the habits and mores, he's got a section that students will be reading um, where he talks specifically about racial issues mm -hmm. in the 1830s when he was in America. And he focuses on the three main racial groups uh, that were present in the U.S. at that time, Native Americans, African Americans, and white Europeans. Um, and then he also talks a little bit about, uh, uh, I think maybe this is the part, some of what uh, some sections will be reading in Tocqueville first. And he says, if we think about habits and mores, where do those habits and mores get shaped and cultivated? And uh, one of the places that where that happens most significantly is in the home. And so he talks about what do parent-child relationships look like in America in contrast to what they look like in Europe? Um, and what about the way that women are being raised? What, what does he observe about um, women's young women and then uh, wives and mothers in America versus in, in Europe? So lots of interesting stuff, um, many things worth thinking about. Mm -hmm. So, Mary, so go ahead. Go ahead, Anne-Marie. Well, so I'm curious uh, what you think about some of his observations with regard to women in the family. Are there certain things That's that I was going to ask? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, part of what I find challenging about reading Tocqueville on that particular issue is he was in America in the 1830s. 
And uh, women's roles in the 1830s were really different from what women's roles in America and in Europe look like today. So, um, uh, yeah, so on the one hand, he observes that, um, and I guess I feel like I don't know enough about what life was like for women in say France in his day, but he argues that uh, young women in America are kind of really raised and encouraged to, um, to be willing to speak their mind mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, and that they seem to have more independence than he felt that young women in France had. Um, so on the one hand, they are raised to be um, uh, kind of their own person, but then at the same time, once they get married, they uh, willingly and happily submit. And um, yeah, I uh, <clears throat> that most definitely rubs me the wrong way. So um, I, I, on the one hand, I guess I want to say, I, I think that in some conservative Christian circles in America today, uh, I, I think I would argue that, yeah, I actually see some of those exact same dynamics going on. Um, I don't think it's as prevalent as it was, say, in the 1830s when Tocqueville was in America, was in the States. Um, yeah, I guess that's all. <laughs> that's all I'll say about that. Yeah, it's certainly an interesting um, observation that depending on what phase of life a woman yeah. at from Tocqueville's perspective, either American American women have more freedom or yes. have less freedom. Yes. You go from a state of having more freedom than European women would have to giving it up and having way less freedom than say a yeah. European woman. Yeah. Yeah. Perplexing observation. Indeed. Agreed. Well, and I will just um, add that what Tocqueville finds, I think, really fascinating about married women in particular is that he doesn't actually see their equality being compromised. Mm -hmm. He actually sees men and women in America drawing close together in terms of equality, but he thinks the real genius of the Americans is that they preserve difference right. inequality. And so this is how he somehow reconciles this idea that women and men are actually more equal in America. And yet, and I just have to quote from him, I actually wrote this down. He says, the independence of woman is irretrievably lost within the bonds of marriage. Mm -hmm. And yet he actually thinks that the women in America are, he, he says, superior. Mm -hmm. And because... Well, I was going to say superior because within the context of a family, they were the ones primarily responsible for shaping and nurturing and cultivating mm -hmm. the habits and mores that were necessary for moving democracy forward. Right. Um, I'm teaching, uh, I'm also teaching World Lit this semester and um, coming up in a, and we focus on Japanese Lit and coming up in a couple of weeks, uh, we will be at a similar, um, about 50 years ahead of where Tocqueville was, but during a time in Japan's history where the pressure was on women um, to be what uh, the English translation of the Japanese is, 
to be good wives and wise mothers. Um, and there was lots of gov Japanese government sponsored uh, propaganda is really the only word I can think of for this that would talk about this is the kind of education a woman is supposed to have because this is her role in the home. And to me, that sounds very much like what Tocqueville is saying. So lots of uh, responsibility, lots of opportunity, lots of freedom, but within very narrow constraints. And I think there are a lot of conservative Christian young women in that, that we encounter as among our students um, who talk that way and, uh, and on the one hand, if that's a choice that a woman wants to make, um, that's one thing. But I think what becomes complicated is the really, really strong social pressure suggesting that this is what marriage should look like, this is what a woman's role should be, and therefore, um, and that, well, it, anyway, I, I just see it as potentially very problematic. Mm -hmm. And the idea that equality and difference, I, I don't know that I agree that I agree with that. If it's forced difference, um, yeah, yeah. Well, and this is such an interesting conversation to have at this point in American history as well, because we're also coming out of this conversation with the framers of the Constitution, with all of their inconsistencies in terms of equality and freedom but really only for white men. Oh, right? yeah. Well, and, uh, and Tocqueville hugely and absolutely notes that. Mm -hmm. He talks about, uh, talks about the social state of the different groups of people in America and that the social state for white people, um, white males in particular, looks like this. Mm -hmm. um, equality, opportunity, et cetera, but the social state for Native Americans and for African Americans is totally different. And Tocqueville, um, Tocqueville sees that as deeply problematic and um, with eerie, eerie uh, uh, predictability, I mean, his, his predictive abilities are amazing. Yeah. He, he notices how, um, I mean, he basically predicts that the Civil War is going to happen. Yeah. He predicts mm -hmm. uh, slavery, slave revolts um, by talking about what slavery does to both slaveholders and slaves. Mm -hmm. And then I, I think helps us understand why so many racial issues um, continue to be problematic in our country because issues that never did get resolved in the 1830s um, even though slavery doesn't legally exist anymore, some of the uh, attitudes that were shaped then um, are, are really hard to get rid of. And then in talking about Native Americans, he was in the States during the time that the Trail of Tears was happening. He was in the States when Andrew Jackson was president. Um, he, he uh, oh, I, have a, I just have a quote here, if I can find it. Um, he, uh, oh, here we go. Um, he was very uh, underwhelmed by Andrew Jackson. He, uh, that is an uh, understatement. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't, I can't find that. Um, but the, he, uh, he did not see Andrew Jackson as a man of distinction or genius at all. And 
uh, in the time that Tocqueville was, I find this amazing, in the time that Tocqueville was in America, the Supreme Court had ruled in favor of the Cherokee Nation, saying that, yes, this treaty that was established before is a valid treaty, and he, they, they ruled in favor of the Cherokee, and Andrew Jackson, the president, basically said, I don't care. Um, <laughs> I don't care what the Supreme right. Court says. And same with Congress. Let's just put that out there as well. Congress yeah, okay. passed the bill for Indian removal. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I'm happy to give Andrew Jackson a lot of credit, but the other branch of government failed too. Yeah. Yeah, so we read the feds and anti-feds with all of this, with Madison's confidence that the checks and balances are going to work swimmingly. And then in the 1830s, just a couple decades later, we see how, oh, maybe not always. Whoops. Yeah, whoops indeed. Although it's rare. That's a rare instance where the, the executive branch doesn't actually cooperate with the judiciary. But still, I mean, mm -hmm. it's obviously a huge, huge um, problem. Indeed. I think the fact that you have brought up Tocqueville's observations about race is what makes me all the more puzzled, frankly, by his comments on women. Like he's so prescient with regard to so many things. And I'm reading through the stuff on women where he's like, you know, women are, he says, um, rarely praised, but daily esteemed. They completely give up their independence when they get married. And yet he thinks this seems to be somewhat praiseworthy because mm -hmm. these women have made their decisions, um, their informed decisions. And all through this, I'm going, like, who is he talking to? Like, what women is he talking to? Because in a decade or so, I mean, it takes a decade, but we do have the Women's Rights Convention happening, mm -hmm. and those women are not going to express a great deal of contentedness with their role. So I'm a little surprised that he doesn't have some of the foresight on the woman issue, if you will, or the family mm -hmm. issue mm -hmm. that he expresses with regard to not only African Americans, but Native Americans. And Native Americans is something really interesting because that sometimes gets to be a facet that's lost in a lot of the just sort of traditional US history surveys. Right. So I love that Tocqueville talks about that. But I guess that makes me all the more sort of frustrated when he talks about women because I think he's onto something with regard to the independence of the single or unmarried woman. Mm -hmm. And yet, and he's got these crazy statements. So there's that one section where he talks about how married women are really invested in the economics of the family. And in America, the economics are not stable. They're not part of an aristocratic family estate. And so the fortunes of the family wax and wane. And so the woman is sort of tied to the home because she's protecting the home from these sort of adverse economic circumstances. And so there's that little section at the end. And I think, Marion, you've talked about this before, where he notices these families who have, you know, gone west to seek their fortune. Right. And the women have no say in this. This is the decision of the patriarch of the family. Yeah. And he makes this crazy comment about the women. Their features seemed faded, but their look was firm. They appeared at once sad and resolute. And I'm like, dude, doesn't that give you cause for alarm? I mean, like, Seriously. what are you saying here, buddy? Like, 
don't you sort of sense a revolution coming? I got to think, I mean, good gracious, that gives me chills. I mean, this partly makes me wonder. um, I mean, I know that uh, he and his travel companion, Beaumont, um, covered a lot of ground geographically um, during the the months that they were in the States. Uh, But it still makes me wonder who exactly did he talk to? And I bet that um, it, it just the reality is, I, I'm sure that he primarily talked to men. Um, and so if you're talking to a man, talk to, I mean, even if he met the wife or uh, was served, you know, tea and cookies in the house, he's probably still mostly going to talk to the men because that's how it would have been done back then. And I could easily imagine a very different story being told um, if he had talked to more women and if they had felt that they could talk honestly. And certainly he would have encountered some women who lined up, some married women whose attitudes toward their lives lined up very neatly with his assessment of things. There certainly were then and are now women who find deep and abiding fulfillment in um, committing themselves to raising children and to caring for the home and, and that sort of thing and uh, and understand their role in very traditional ways. And so I don't want to sound like I'm being critical of that, but it's one thing if that's genuinely a choice. <laughs> and it's another thing if, as in the quotes that you just mentioned, Anne-Marie, it's another thing if, um, if legally and uh, in terms of social pressure and messages you think you're receiving theologically from your worship community, um, all make it sound like this is the path you must follow. Um, I think that's problematic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I do wonder, because, like you say, he was so prescient mm. in so many other areas, um, politically, racially, um, and there were certainly women in the United States and in Europe who are writing about these issues very, very strongly by this point, right? Yeah. I mean, we lit, we talked about Abigail Adams and her comments, Mary Wollstonecraft. I mean, remember yeah. the ladies. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, and it's yeah, interesting because there's a footnote actually in the section that we read with students about the family where he might be contrasting women in the United States with someone like a Mary Wollstonecraft, who for our listeners, it's important to note, she is an English woman who writes the Vindication of the Rights of Woman. What is that in the 1700s? But she is also somebody who Tocqueville may have known lived an unconventional personal life. Yes. And she is actually the mother of Mary Shelley, the author, author of Frankenstein, Frankenstein yep. we will be reading a little bit later on in the semester. So it's interesting because later on in the semester, when we read Frankenstein, one of the things that might potentially come up is the sort of question of whose job is it to create? Is it the scientist, the man in the book Frankenstein, or is it the woman? What is mm-hmm. the, you know? So there's a very interesting um, connection, even in Tocqueville, potentially to something that we're reading that on first glance seems to have nothing to do with this book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. 
I, I, I just wonder too, like what would have happened if Tocqueville had had a conversation with some of the women in the abolitionist movement? Because those are the women who will be on the forefront of the little bit later women's rights movement. Yes, yes. I yeah, mean, and speaking would... of speaking of abolition, right about exactly the time, I mean, during the time that Tocqueville was in the US is when Nat Turner's slave rebellion yes. happened when uh, abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison started publishing his uh, abolitionist newspaper called The Liberator. So there was a lot of social ferment, a lot of social change being advocated um, during the time that Tocqueville was in America. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting because I went through and looked at the introduction to our version of Democracy in America just to see what the editors had to say about the fact that Tocqueville has these sort of somewhat odd comments in some ways on the family, given that he is so prescient with regard to these other things. And they sort of were thinking that maybe he saw family in the same category as religion as offering kind of a check on mm. the passions of men who the editors argue um, are not necessarily treated with the utmost regard by Tocqueville, that he's actually very critical of the American male restlessness. Yeah. And so he actually sees females in their role um, as well as religion as being this sort of very positive check. On yeah. Yeah. Which I thought, again, like the fact that the editors were a little more critical. So I thought that was a little weird too, quite honestly, but mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, there it is. So anyway, um, we don't actually read, Marion, any American women from the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s. And I wonder as someone in the literature department, if there were women from this era that were writing or that you could recommend anything oh. in mind on that? I know that's a terrible, terrible question. Like when is Emily Dickinson writing? Uh, I mean, she, 1800s, um, a little bit later than this, but so Emily Dickinson would be an example. The, um, this is later, but um, I just, Willa Cather comes to my mind. I kind of have Willa Cather on the brain. Uh, I mean, she's writing really closer to about 1900 and more looking back at uh, not just women, but uh, some of the early immigrant settlers on the, on the prairie. Um, anyway, I, yeah, I'm not helping you here, but, I but like I would always, I would always recommend Willa Cather. Okay. Carrie, you had a, Thought, well, I, just, I just know that I, the other humanities team does in fact read Emily Dickinson. Mm -hmm. So it could be interesting to have a conversation with some of those folks about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that. women are churning out publication after publication in this era, but it doesn't get classed into the great books kind of category. Oh. Cause it's something like Harriet Beecher Stowe's. Um, like Uncle Tom's Uncle Cabin. Tom's sure. mm -hmm. And actually, um, Harriet Beecher Stowe's uh, sister Catherine is writing all of these treatises um, on the domestic economy. So she's writing like recipe books and how to do the home thing really well mm -hmm. and stuff like that. But again, that's maybe uh, not something I necessarily recommend as like, just pick, pick this one up and, and read it. <laughs> mm -hmm. We've all got a lot of free time. So reading some recipe books from the 1800s seems like kind of interesting. Sure. Well, sure, you know, I, I like know. the Lords and Ladles. So, you know. Yeah. 
that's, a, that's another whole conversation. Um, well, since we're um, in the time of COVID-19, Marian, um, could you talk to us a little bit about um, some of your coping strategies right now? Yeah, in the so time of COVID. coping in time of COVID for sure. Uh, well, okay, so a couple things. I actually made notes about this because I have a whole bunch of things to say, which is going to oh, be more than, more than we have time for. But um, so my husband and I uh, go to a really small Episcopal church. Um, and uh, right at about the time that it was announced that we were going to be canceling our face-to-face -face church services for at least a couple of weeks, um, one of my friends in choir um, who's a lifetime Episcopalian, um, suggested to a few of us, she said, you know, we should use Zoom to do a daily 7 p.m. Uh, evening prayer service, a Compline service. And in the Book of Common Prayer, it's like six pages of here are, uh, here are a few set prayers that the person leading can choose from. Um, choose from these, this set of Psalms. Um, here's, a, here's a slot where we could... Uh, sing or listen to a hymn and then uh, end, basically ending the service with the prayer of Simeon, the old man who was one of the people who when he first saw uh, baby Jesus being brought to the temple to be dedicated, um, basically the Lord now let your servant depart in peace. So we recite that together. And um, there've been about a dozen of us who have been participating in this. Uh, Dave and I have done this together uh, just about every day for about the last two weeks mm -hmm. and uh, via Zoom. And I've been really, really surprised by how comforting and meaningful it is to see people's faces, hear their voices, and the words of many of the Psalms and the prayers that are part of this service um, just feel so almost eerily relevant right now. You know, this particular Psalms that are part of Compline include asking for God's protection and comfort um, in the prayers. It's words like defend us from all perils and dangers, um, be with those who tend the sick, uh, comfort the weary. Uh, one, of the, <laughs> one of the prayers even refers to protect us from pestilence. And not too long ago, if I had participated in a service where that wording would have come up, I would have kind of laughed a little bit and thought, ooh, pestilence, like that just sounds so Old Testament, right? <laughs> um, so participating in that has been really helpful. Uh, I recently read a piece in um, Image Magazine, uh, which is like a Christian arts publication. And one of the pieces in there, the uh, author, said, well, uh, this is a novelist. She said, I was asked to give a talk at a university about how C.S. Lewis has shaped me as a writer. And that talk got canceled at the last minute, but here's the introduction that I wrote for that talk. <laughs> and in the introduction, she draws from C.S. Lewis's famous um, essay called Learning in Wartime. Uh, which Lewis delivered about a month after Hitler invaded Poland um, to a bunch of basically uh, English Oxford students. And kind of like in, in, the, in the time of big things going on in the world, what in the world are we doing uh, studying together? 
And, um, and one of the points that this author makes is that uh, Lewis makes the point that if what we do as academics is ever important, it's particularly important in unsettling times. Mm -hmm. And Lewis says, and uh, he says, it's, it's going to be easy to be, uh, here, I'm just going to read a couple sentences from this woman's talk. Uh, she quotes from Lewis, but she adapts it. She says, the trouble comes, Lewis says, when world events are so distressing and our anxiety so occupying that we can no longer focus on what we are actually called to do right now. We believe that by taking in more information, we can somehow control what is uncontrollable. Um, and then she says, but the deluge of information coming at us right now can be dangerous. Uh, in fact, we might do best to focus on reading works that were composed in eras other than our own. And then now she quotes from Lewis, most of all, Lewis writes, we need intimate knowledge of the past. A person who has lived in many places is not likely to be deceived by the local errors of their native village. The scholar that has lived in many times and is therefore in some degree immune from the great cataract of nonsense that pours from the press and the microphones of their own age. And uh, this author uses the phrase being mentored by the dead. Mm. And um, uh, so it, it, that's, that perspective has led me to want to take more seriously the ideas that I teach about and the texts that I'm having my students read right now. Um, in Britlet, we've been reading uh, poetry by Matthew Arnold, the Victorian, um, the Victorian thinker. And in the poems we read for just a few days ago, he talks about feeling uh, nostalgia for the old days and, and wondering if things will ever be like they used to be and feeling isolated from people. And I thought, okay, I can relate, I can relate, I can relate. Um, so that's been, uh, I guess that's not really a coping strategy, but um, a one of my coping strategies is Dave and I have recently been rewatching episodes of The Office on Netflix. <laughs> so that's kind of our, that's our daily palate cleanser. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Well, and I feel like, are you and Dave still also reading stories to your grandchildren by way of the internet? We, uh, we've recorded a couple of them. Yeah. So our, our grandkids just live in Shakopee, but we can't see them right now. And Leighton is two and a half. And, uh, whenever we have seen her, she's got, uh, maybe five or six books that every time she's at her house, she asks one or the other of us to read. So we've recorded each other reading those books and then shared them with, with, uh, our daughter, um, and so Leighton's been able to sit in front of their big, big screen TV and read are these, these books. Mm. Are these videos available to the general public, Marian? They're not available to the general public, oh, but that's a pity. Yeah, I know it is a pity, but the, okay. yeah, it, it that would be too. My coping strategy. <laughs> yes, indeed, because we're we're very comforting. Um, the other thing is, right now I'm reading Eric Larson's newest book. It's called The Splendid and the Vile, and it's about uh, England during the Blitz and the role that Churchill played. And again, that's another one that feels really, um, you know, let's keep calm and carry on and, 
And I, I recently, uh, the part of the book I just read, Churchill has the speech where he's got the line, never have so many um, been relied on the sacrifices of so few, or I, I forget how, it's something like that. And I, it made me think about healthcare workers and people who deliver stuff to us from Amazon and people who work at the grocery store. Yeah. Well, Carrie, same question to you. Um, what are you doing to, to get through COVID-19? So still watching uh, Grace and Frankie, which is still delighting me. Such a delightful show. And um, related to Mary and your, your comment that maybe it's good to set aside things from this time and, and look to people of the past, I've decided that... Um, that Margaret Atwood is not perfect for right now. It's already very dystopic what we're oh, living. Lots, yes. I've, set, I've set that aside for the moment. And I'm still, I'm working through slowly James Joyce's Ulysses, as I mentioned last week. Um, and then I started in place of Atwood, I have started um, Virginia Woolf's Orlando, which yeah. I haven't read before. So I'm going mm -hmm. going back in time for two, two very different nice. stories. Yeah, very nice. Um, I can tell you that my husband, Tim, got me on a new show. This is on Acorn TV. This is a wacko show. It's hilarious. It's called Raised by Wolves. Hmm. And there is a um, definitely working class mother. She has six children, one of whom is a boy. And they are homeschooled. And there's a grampy who also lives with them for part of the time. And it is the most hilarious thing I have seen on television, television with the air quotes in a long time, because a lot of the humor has to do with these girls kind of coming of age. So like they're right up front about like periods and, um, things like what does it look like for a young woman to try to figure out what does a, a woman's undergarment look like. Hmm. I mean, it's just hilarious. And they're, the oldest daughter wears these fantastic outfits that I could not even imagine the collage that she is assembling for her look. It is so funny. And I think you can get like a 30 day streaming, like trial. trial and it's really hmm. worth just for the first episode it's just hilarious that sounds pretty awesome oh it's it's so funny it's so funny um i was hearing tim he was watching it in the basement and i was hearing him laugh from the basement all the way up to the second floor where i was sitting and <laughs> doing something that's good that sounds very therapeutic it was, it was great yeah. and i was looking through my bookshelves because Carrie was saying that she was going to read Ulysses and Sam actually chimed in. He was so excited about somebody reading Ulysses. Uh -huh. And I thought, well, maybe we have this on our bookshelf. We don't, but we did have um, Dubliners by James mm -hmm. Joyce, which is a collection of short stories. Oh yeah. That's so, amazing. Yep. So I, I was like, Oh, you know, I'm sure this is Tim's book and no, it's my book. I read it. I think maybe in my modern novel class. So I'm rereading the short stories from Dubliners. And oh, that's awesome. Enjoyable. Yeah, so nice. it's on my nice. nice. That's, that, we sort of did our nightstand coping question all in one. So is there mm -hmm. anything else on your nightstand, Marion, that you wanted to make sure we mention? 
uh, on the top, the top book on my nightstand is a collection of sermons by Frederick Beekner, who is uh, an author I love. And um, most nights I read one of those sermons before I go to sleep. And that, uh, that's been pretty terrific. Well, and I'll just mention one other, one other thing that um, might be of interest. I keep thinking about our humanity students when I go to the Biola Lent project. Oh yes, that's wonderful. So that's a daily meditation, but it comes with a piece of visual art, some music and a poem. Yep. And actually my daughter Lydia and I have been reading them over breakfast in the morning. And that is really something that is enjoyable. And I think maybe our humanities students would really find that to be interesting. Could um, oh, yeah. Could you put a link to that on? Oh, Jenna is still with us. And so Jenna will, I'm sure, be very- oh, that, Yeah, that would be terrific. <laughs> I think that would be terrific. Yeah. Well, you've been listening to- Bookish at Bethel.